Hi, everyone. Drew Broad here from the Broken Brain Podcast. We have a fantastic episode for you today. My dear friend, Ocean Robbins, is on the podcast to talk about his book, 31 Day Food Revolution. And if you're wondering where the 31 comes from, Ocean comes from a rich family history and legacy. His grandfather was the founder of Baskin Robbins, 31 Flavors, and his father, John Robbins, walked away from the entire empire, the entire company, because he wasn't in alignment with the way that the ice cream was being made, and he wasn't really in alignment with ice cream in general. Walked away from it all, started a new family legacy. Ocean is out here continuing that legacy on here on our podcast today to talk about his new book, 31 Day Food Revolution, Heal Your Body, Feel Great, Transform Your World. We talk about so many topics in this podcast. We talk about community and the power of relying on relationships and family and friends to lift us up in our health goals. We talk about brain foods that Ocean loves to include into his diet and into the diet of his family. We talk about Ocean's diet and we have a very vulnerable conversation about how his diet has evolved over the years, how he's still predominantly plant-based, but how he's started to include a small amount of animal foods and what are the reasons why he did that. I always appreciate when people can have an open and honest conversation about it all which leads to a conversation on dogma and the importance of letting dogma go and embracing these wider core food concepts that we all agree with. Ocean also tosses in with his top brain superfoods and what he does to keep his mind sharp, running a company, doing all his activism, and making a difference in this world. It's a fun podcast. You're not going to regret listening to it. Ocean is a great guy. And here we go. On to my formal intro for Ocean Robbins. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Perot. Each week, we'll invite a new guest to this podcast who we think can help you improve your brain health, feel better, and live your best life. Our guest this week is a dear friend of mine, author, activist, and entrepreneur, Ocean Robbins. Ocean is the CEO and co-founder of the 500,000-plus member Food Revolution Network, one of the largest communities of healthy eating advocates on the planet. Ocean has held hundreds of live seminars and events that have touched millions of lives in 190 different countries. His grandfather founded Baskin Robbins, and his father, John Robbins, walked away from the family company to write bestsellers like Diet for a New America and to become renowned health advocates. Now, Ocean is on a mission to transform the industrialized food culture into one that celebrates and supports healthy people and a healthy planet. As part of his activism, at the age of 16, he found a YES, Youth for Environmental Sanity, and directed it for the next 20 years. He served as an adjunct professor for Chapman University and is the recipient of the National Jefferson Award for Outstanding Public Service, the Freedom's Flame Award, the Harmon Wilkins Award, and many other honors. Ocean is also the author of the 31-Day Food Revolution, Heal Your Body, Feel Great, Transform Your World, which is available worldwide on February 5th. Ocean, welcome to the podcast. I am thrilled to be with you, Drew, and so excited that you are doing this, uh, creating rich conversations about one of the most important topics on the planet, which is the human brain. Absolutely, brother. Thank you for that. And you've supported our Broken Brain series, and every year we support your Food Revolution uh, Summit. So many of our listeners are familiar with you, but they're probably familiar with your work right now. I want to take it a little bit back, an origin story. Of course, I talked about Baskin Robbins, but first, before we go into that, 
Have you ever actually stepped foot in a Baskin Robbins in your life? <laughs> oh yes, indeed, I certainly have. In fact, I'll tell you a couple, a couple uh, little family secrets. So, uh, still to this day, when my dad and I are like traveling and we're like trying to find a spot to meet, say you know on the road, we'll like if there's a Baskin Robbins in town, we'll like we'll like meet there, you know. Um, and uh, all of our luggage keys, you know, if you have a we have a lock and four things, we always do three one three one. It's just a big thing in the family. Uh, so yeah, we have some roots there. You know, my grandpa founded it. And, you know, honestly, uh, when he started Baskin Robbins, there wasn't much known about food and health. And he wasn't trying to kill anybody. He wanted to make people happy. And at that time, it was chocolate, strawberry and vanilla. And he said, heck, let's add some more flavors to the human experience. So he decided to add a lot more 31. In fact, you know, one for every day of the month. And, uh, you know, as the years went by, studies started coming out and we started realizing that maybe ice cream wasn't a health food. Uh, but, you know, originally he just wanted to bring more joy and pleasure to people's lives. And he did that uh, quite successfully. So at the time that your dad had walked away from the family empire that was created, uh, what age were you or were you born at all? I wasn't born yet. So uh, stepping back a little, my, my grandpa's uh, brother-in-law and business partner, Bert Baskin, died of heart disease at the age of 54. He ate a lot of the family product. And what we've seen, of course, is that when people eat the standard American diseases, uh, excuse me, the standard American diet, they tend to get the standard American diseases. So my dad lost his uncle Bert, um, you know, when he was in his early 20s. And at that time, my grandpa was basically faced with a choice. Would he sell the company or would he take on my dad as a partner? So he offered uh, the opportunity to my dad to join him. My dad had grown up with an ice cream cone-shaped swimming pool and 31 flavors of ice cream in the freezer at all times. And he was really groomed for that role from early childhood. But he said no. And he walked away from a path that was practically paved with gold and ice cream to, as we jokingly say in our family, follow his own rocky road. And, you know, honestly, the death of his own uncle was part of the impetus for that, because here was a man who was one of the most successful entrepreneurs in American history. He had a family he loved, he had a business he loved, but he didn't have his health. And so he ended up losing his life. And my dad decided he didn't want to spend his life selling a product that might contribute to more people losing their spouses, their their fathers, uh, like you know he had seen happen within his own family. So he he walked away and ended up moving with my mom to a little island off the coast of Canada, where they built this one room log cabin, grew most of their own food, practiced yoga and meditation for several hours a day, and uh, named their kid Ocean. Now now here's another little piece of the story. Apparently they almost named me Kale. Um, and I've got to tell you, Drew, I am glad for the sake of my future social life that they took the conservative route when it came to naming their son. You know, but we did eat a lot of kale and cabbage and carrots and onions and broccoli and other vegetables that grew in the garden. And in time, my dad ended up becoming a best-selling author, as you know, writing about food and health with books like Diet for a New America and inspiring millions of people to look at food as a chance to make a difference in the world. You know, Diet for New America played a pivotal role in my journey. I've shared the story before, but at the age of um, 17, I was at a conference in Los Angeles and uh, one of the invited speakers uh, was Ingrid Newkirk, the president of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And at the time, yeah. you know, um, wellness, factory farming, animal welfare was not on my radar, even though I grew up as vegetarian, but I had really, really severe uh, acne. And I tried a lot of different things 
And in her lecture, I am honest, I was half paying attention. She mentioned something, something, something. By the way, dairy, processed dairy, factory farm dairy is very inflammatory and can contribute to acne. If you have dairy and you, if you're eating dairy and you have really bad acne, just try it. Try it. What do you have to lose? And yeah. so that sparked a, a little uh, thing inside my brain. And I started looking for books. Diet for New America was one of the first books that I came across. And I started reading more about the industrialized food complex. I got off dairy at the time. And within two months, dairy and sugar, processed sugar. Um, and this is the year 2000. And that really wasn't a thing back then. I got right. off dairy and processed sugar from reading your dad's books. And in two months, two and a half months, my acne completely went away. So just as somebody who's carrying the torch and the legacy on further, I've told this story to your dad a few times. I just want to say thank you for everything that you and your family has done. Oh, you're so welcome. And you know, um, the, the beautiful thing is that we get to hear these kinds of stories every day. I know you do too in your work. And, you know, food is the foundation of health. Of course, for a lot of people, it's also the foundation of disease. But when we fuel our body with the right foods, we can prevent or reverse you know, the vast majority of illnesses, famous ones like heart disease and cancer and type 2 diabetes and Alzheimer's, um, but also less famous ones like acne, like feeling like crap, that that also impact quality of life. And so I've seen so many people who are struggling with low energy, with stubborn pounds around the middle, for, with, with afternoon crashes, with brain fog, with digestive problems with just not feeling great. And, you know, they, they clean up their diet and life just gets better. So I don't think it's just about, you know, preventing disease. It's also about loving your life. Absolutely. When I got off dairy, not only did I have uh, my acne that went away for me, and that's not always the case for everyone, but obviously this was a major far, uh, part of what I uh, dealt with, but also my cognition improved. I could focus easier. I wasn't as cloudy in my thinking. So I want to come back to your book. You know, your dad wrote this bestseller. Not many people are born into a family that their father or mother or parental figure or grandparents uh, have really created something that has completely changed the game for people. Yeah. Um, what was it like putting your book together? And what did you want to put in your book that built on top of the legacy of what your dad had created in Diet for New America? What was the vision and the purpose? Well, I've just come out now with 31 Day Food Revolution. Heal your body, feel great, and transform your world. And I'm really excited about this because, Drew, the, the thing is that for a lot of people, the biggest challenge isn't knowing what to do. It's actually doing what we know. And, uh, you know, if all that was needed was for everyone to know that we need to eat more vegetables and less sugar and processed junk, we would not have an obesity epidemic or a diabetes epidemic or an Alzheimer's epidemic in America right now. But unfortunately, for so many people, the big gap is putting what we know into action. So one of my central goals with 31 Day Food Revolution was, yes, to break through the noise and give people clear, solid, tangible advice based on over 10,000 medical studies published in peer-reviewed journals, but also to make it all practical and fun and enjoyable and doable. So there are stories woven throughout the book, and every single one of the 31 chapters ends with action steps you can take so you can get real results. And uh, so, uh, and, and that's, I think, the really fun part. And there are 31 chapters. That's no coincidence, because I'm saying at the end of the day, 
31 Steps to Health will give you more pleasure and more satisfaction even than 31 flavors of ice cream. <laughs> so let's start off with I want to I'm going to jump around a little bit and go into different subjects that uh, I know our audience is going to be so excited about that we haven't covered as much or in depth on the podcast. So bear with me while we go through a few different topics over here. So one of the themes that you talk about in your work as being an activist, and you also have talked about in your Food Revolution Online Summit and in your new book is GMOs. And I want to start off with the basic premise. There's a lot of new listeners to this podcast. There's a lot of people that are just getting involved in brain health for the first time, just getting involved in health for the first time. I want to touch on this topic of GMOs. What what are GMOs and what is the challenge that we are, uh, what is the, how do they relate to our health and what are the possible challenges that we face in consuming them? Well, first of all, what's a GMO? A lot of people think it means God move over, but it doesn't. It means genetically modified organism. And, you know, Monsanto, now owned by Bayer, along with DuPont, Syngenta, Dow, the other big uh, agrochemical companies behind this technology, promised the world that GMOs would give us bigger yields, more drought-resistant crops, better nutrition, better flavor, and lower pesticide consumption. Sounds pretty good to me, right? But 25 or more years into the mass cultivation of GMO crops, we haven't gotten any of those promised benefits. We haven't gotten better yields. We haven't gotten more drought resistance, better flavor, better nutrition. And we've got now a net increase of about 200 million pounds a year of added pesticide consumption. So what have GMO crops given us? They've given us crops that predominantly 99% of the time have one or both of two traits. Number one, they are pesticide producers. They produce the insecticide Bt in every cell of the plant. Now, Bt is uh, a, a insecticide that certain bugs, when they take a bite, their stomachs split open and they die. Uh, it's generally considered non-toxic to humans. It's been used in organic agriculture for a long time. But I don't know anybody who wants to go and drink the stuff. And we're now consuming massive quantities of Bt because it's in every cell of the plant when we're um, when we're genetically engineering it into into crops. And the other trait we've got going on is herbicide tolerance. So crops have literally been engineered to be resistant to herbicides, most, most commonly glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup. Now, herbicides were never traditionally consumed by human beings because if you sprayed them on food crops, they would kill the food crop. But now we're spraying very large quantities on our crops because, of course, it no longer kills the crops now that they've been engineered in this way. What's the result of eating all of this glyphosate, another weed killer? Well, we don't exactly know, but I'll tell you one thing. Glyphosate is a probable carcinogen, according to the World Health Organization. It is a known endocrine disruptor, and it's been patented as an antibiotic. This means it kills bacteria. So we as human beings in the modern world are consuming food that has been sprayed with glyphosate, which can disrupt bacteria. Now, what do you think that might be doing to our digestive tract? We don't exactly know because pretty much everybody today, with only very few exceptions, has been exposed to glyphosate. But you know what? In the last generation, we've seen a fourfold increase in hospitalizations of kids for food allergies. 
We've seen a massive growth in rates of uh, people who are sensitive to gluten and celiac even has risen. We've seen a lot of people who are allergic to things that they weren't allergic to a generation ago. So what's causing this? Well, we don't know. But there's a pretty strong correlation between the spread of glyphosate and the spread of all kinds of digestive problems. Now, there are other things that have happened in the last generation, too. We're eating more sugar and more processed junk and more processed chemicals of all kinds. Correlation is not causation. But when you see a correlation this strong and you recognize that glyphosate is an antibiotic, it starts to make you wonder if we should be studying this a little bit more. So let's suppose you're somebody who doesn't want to be a human guinea pig in a mass social experiment. Let's suppose you want to avoid GMOs. What do you do? Well, there's a three-step process. Number one, you can choose to go organic. Foods that are organically grown are by definition non-GMO, and they're also free from neurotoxic pesticides of other kinds besides Roundup. Number two, you can go certified non-GMO. And those crops are not necessarily grown organically, uh, but they are going to be GMO-free. And non-GMO certified foods have gone from nothing to over $26 billion in sales in the U.S. alone in just the last seven years. So there's obviously strong consumer demand here. Number three, you can look out for the particular suspect crops. So most of the GMO crops in mass production today are corn, soy, canola, cotton, which is used in cottonseed oil and sugar beets, which are representative of about half the sugar supply in the United States. So if you can avoid those crops and additives and products made from them that are not either organic or certified non-GMO, then that's another way that you can uh, protect yourself and your family. All great tips. Do you have any opinion on, uh, I think it was last August, there was a plaintiff, uh, uh, Dwayne Johnson, who was... um, in the lawsuit that was against uh, Monsanto and they ended up winning the, well, the jury convicted Monsanto and ordered them to pay, I think 289 million. I think obviously yep. there's being content contested. Uh, what are you seeing now in terms of the awareness and also legislation and lawsuits with GMOs? Do you feel like we're finally starting to get some traction where these big companies have to pay attention? I think we are. I mean, we know that Bayer, the owner of Monsanto, you know, their stock dropped by like 8% following the that verdict, which is a big deal for a company of that size. Billions of dollars. Yeah, many billions of dollars. And um, so, you know, the, the, the Dwayne Johnson verdict was significant. And what's also significant is that there are more than 5,000 other lawsuits moving through the courts right now from other people who say, rightly or wrongly, that deaths are linked to glyphosate. Now, Dwayne Johnson was a groundskeeper, and he was spraying the stuff, and he bought the party line from Monsanto that this stuff was safe and non-toxic. But apparently that's not the case, and apparently they know better, and they've been hiding it from the public. And they've been fighting against having warning labels, like the Prop 65 warning label in California, which says that it contains chemicals known to the state of California to cause cancer. The state of California wants those labels anytime glyphosate is sold to consumers. Monsanto is fighting back. Uh, they may change their tune soon because uh, the fact that they've been resisting this reality is part of why they got sued and hit up not just w- with a wrongful death lawsuit, but they're being sued for uh, willfully concealing the evidence. And that created unnecessary risk for Dwayne Johnson and a whole lot of other people who are handling glyphosate on the job. Well, you can always tell how something takes off when it comes to legal matters because I've been seeing more ads on different websites through Google ads, Google 
um, AdWords, where I've seen lawyers in all sorts of different parts of the country asking for people to write in if they have also suffered from similar things or feel like that glyphosate or Roundup have been products that might have led to their uh, cancer. And uh, so you know that there's some momentum and traction that's there. When it comes to prioritization, you said something really beautiful earlier and something really important, which is that people know what to do, but they don't always do it. Where do you put the avoidance of GMOs on the scale and priorities of things that we're trying to incorporate into our life to live healthy? Like in a big picture, um, where does GMO sit on all the possible things that we could do and avoiding them? Well, there are so many steps you can take if you want to be healthy. And you know, we have a lot of studies published in peer-reviewed medical journals telling us in no uncertain terms that it's good for us to eat more whole foods, more plants, more vegetables, even more whole fruits, legumes, uh, less animal products in general, less processed junk, and less sugar. And whether you're looking at <clears throat> heart disease or cancer or type 2 diabetes or weight issues, <clears throat> brain fog, <clears throat> Alzheimer's, all of these things are directly impacted by your diet. Um, and what I want to point out is that most of the people in uh, those studies were not eating organically grown foods. And they still got tremendous benefit from moving <clears throat> in a whole foods plant-based direction. Now, there's no question that when you eat less processed foods, you're also going to have less GMO exposure because a lot of the processed foods are high in the corn and soy and canola and cottonseed uh, and, and sugar beets, for that matter, that are genetically engineered. But I, that's not the whole story. So I think, you know, if, if you're choosing between eating an organic donut and non-organic kale, you know, go for the kale every time. If you can afford to go organic, it's a great step to take, not only for your health, but also for your planet and for farm workers. You know, life expectancy for farm workers in uh, the state of California, where I live, has been estimated to be as low as 49 years. Uh, cancer rates for farm workers are off the charts. And so when you choose to go organic, you're actually investing in um, helping save lives, not, not just your own, but the, those of farm workers. You're contributing to a healthier, more balanced ecosystem that won't be contaminated with neurotoxic pesticides. And uh, personally, I look at food as a vote, uh, not just for my life, but also for the world that I want. And I want to cast that vote intelligently and thoughtfully. So there are some really good reasons to go organic and also to go non-GMO if you don't want to give your hard-earned money to companies like Monsanto Bayer, if you don't want your food sprayed with glyphosate. Um, but you know, in the range of things, I think eating more vegetables and fruits and whole foods and plants and less processed foods and less animal products, especially from factory farms, is probably, you know, at the top of the list. And then I think conscious sourcing, going for organic, non-GMO, fair trade, local farmers markets, community supported agriculture programs, those are all absolutely wonderful next steps if you want to go further. So we talked about GMOs. Let's zoom out a little bit. And if somebody would describe like, what is your food philosophy? You know, Michael Pollan has his famous uh, Eve food mostly plants, not too much. If somebody yep. would zoom out and would talk about oceans, uh, food philosophy, uh, could you give it to us in a sentence? And then let's dive deep into a few categories that we can unpack a little bit further. Sure. If I was going to say it in a sentence, I'd say um, <clears throat> less processed junk, less factory farmed animal products, more whole plant foods and conscious sourcing. Diving out or diving into that a little bit more, I mean, it's frankly very similar to Michael Pollan's take. I think that I look at the blue zones 
which Dan Buettner documented for National Geographic. These are the regions of the world where people have traditionally lived the longest and healthiest lives. And what we see in the blue zones is, and he studied six of them around the world, we see that people typically uh, get about, you know, between zero and 10% of their calories from animal products. They get, you know, very little sugar or processed foods, and they eat a whole lot of vegetables. And generally, I think in all of the blue zones, the one food they all eat uh, in large amounts is legumes. Um, and if you look at the blue zones, we, I think we can learn something uh, because this is where our real elders reside. Now, we could argue till the cows come home, literally, about whether the optimal amount of animal products in the human diet is 0% or 1% or 5% or 10%. But the average American is getting 34%. We're also getting, you know, another 50% or 60% from sugar and processed foods. And I think there is no argument uh, that we should be dropping both of those numbers quite a bit and basing our diet more around whole plant foods. And I think that's what the blue zones teach us. So, you know, I welcome people who want to be 100% vegan. I welcome people who want to draw a bright line and eat zero sugar or ice cream ever. Um, and I also welcome people who want to cut down who want to move in this direction and find exactly how far makes sense for them in the context of their lives. I think that there's room for everybody to be a part of this food revolution and, and step forward and reap tremendous benefits. Absolutely. And of course, everybody has different opinions on that. And I'm sure you can find somebody out there to argue from any one standpoint or not. But broad spectrum, I always appreciate what you share is that, uh, and I know you've had Dr. Hyman on your uh, food revolution summit before. And uh, we've, we've, We've had a uh, Dan Butner on a doctor's pharmacy with Dr. Hyman before, and they've kind of dove into uh, some of these topics a little bit further. Big picture, we're all on the same uh, basis, and especially when it comes to that category of factory farming. So I grew up uh, vegetarian. I later became, in large part to your dad's book and some of the early other books that I read, I became vegan. Uh, I did that for quite a bit of time. And I yeah. used to have one of the largest websites in the world on raw foods, actually. Yeah. And uh, and uh, over a period of time, as I got more into the space of functional medicine, I made my own changes in my body. I've talked about in my diet. And um, and I've talked about that previously on podcasts before. One of the things that I never got into, primarily because I never really ate meat growing up, is I never got into factory farming. So when I finally did start consuming some animal products, um, there was so much education and awareness in my world about the importance of choosing things and staying away from factory farming. So let's, because it's such an important part and it hits so many topics, including uh, the environment and pollution and so many other things, let's just really do a drill down on factory farming because you said less processed meats and staying away from factory farming, which all of us can agree on. So big picture overview, for those that aren't familiar, what is factory farming and what's the problem with it? Okay, well, good, good point here. So the, I have three major problems with factory farming. So first, what is it? The industry calls it concentrated animal feeding operations. Uh, consumers tend to call it factory farming. The bottom line is animals are cooped up in very close quarters. They're fed a very unnatural diet. They're given um, little space, little, you know, um, little of their natural experience. Many of them never see the sun or a blade of grass in their entire lives. In those close quarters, sickness tends to spread rapidly. So many of them are pumped full of antibiotics to keep them alive under miserable conditions. And also because it's been found that animals that are fed antibiotics with every dose of feed will gain weight faster. 
Many of them are also given artificial hormones to make them gain weight faster, or in the case of cows, to lactate more. And um, and then they're bred in very strange ways. So for example, chickens raised for meat in factory farms have been bred to kind of go the equivalent of what it would be for a human baby to go from nothing to over 600 pounds in about three months. They get so morbidly obese that they can't walk. So they literally sit in their feces for their entire miserable lives. They're kept in such small space that they're unable to lift a single wing. And uh, they go crazy in these conditions. And so they try to peck each other to death. And the industry's response is to cut off their sensitive beaks. So they still try, but they are unable to succeed. So I've got three major problems with factory farms. And one is that I think they're cruel. And as a human being of conscience, I don't want to participate in a system that, frankly, I consider a form of torture for other sentient beings. Number two, they're environmental disasters. It takes 12 pounds of grain or soy to produce one pound of feedlot beef. It takes four or five or six to produce a pound of chicken or pork. So essentially, these are protein factories in reverse. We're taking uh, hard-earned calories and we're feeding them to animals. And the animals are essentially wasting most of them in the form of hoof and hide and bones and feathers and energy they use and poop. And a lot of them um, are also very polluting because when you concentrate manure in large quantities in a small space, it's much harder to get it back on the land in an efficient and appropriate way, winds up collecting in big lagoons, winds up polluting drinking water for neighboring populations, creating tremendous air pollution, they're kind of environmental disasters, and they're fueling climate change. So I uh, got some big problems with them from an ethical and environmental standpoint. And don't get me started about health because, you know, when it comes to health, these products are not your friend. They're coming from animals that have been fattened up massively. They're, they're bred to be morbidly obese. Guess what that does to humans who eat them? Do you think it might contribute to the obesity epidemic? You bet it does. There's a tremendous correlation between consumption of factory farmed animal products and heart disease and cancer type 2 diabetes, so many other health ailments, red meat in particular, processed meat most of all, but all of these products to some extent. Now, uh, is pasture-raised better? Uh, Almost certainly it's better from all three standpoints. Almost certainly it's less cruel to animals. I think there's no argument about that. Um, it's, It's probably better for the planet in a significant way, though it does depend how it's done. Rainforest beef is no great friend to the planet, but when pasture-raised cows are able to graze in, an, in a, as part of an overall managed ecosystem. Their manure goes into the soil and they can actually be uh, contributors to overall ecological health when it's done right, which it usually is not, but it can be. Um, and then, um, you know, from a health standpoint, uh, pasture-raised animal products tend to be lower in fat, especially the worst kinds of fat and higher in omega-3s and other healthier fats. And they tend to be not just more lean, but um, more clean with less hormones and antibiotics. So uh, now does that mean they're a health food? Well, it's controversial. There actually aren't many studies, if any, that have been done over long term that have shown the health impacts of pasture-raised animal products on human beings. We have a lot on wild fish, but not so much on pasture-raised meat, particularly as it compares to factory farm meat. But I think there's little doubt that it's better. Now, whether it's optimal for human health, well, that's that may be arguable. Um, but there's little doubt that it's a big improvement. And if you are going to eat meat, I say eat less and eat better meat. What do you think about 
the future of laboratory grown meat and some of the work that's happening in that space. Is that a solution that you think has some potential to address some of these categories? I mean, I have my own thoughts, of course, which is what are they feeding the meat and what is the what is the building blocks that these cells are using to actually build it? But we'd love to get your opinion on it. Um, is that sure. one of the technologies that you feel excited about or not excited about? I am cautiously curious. From an environmental standpoint, it all depends what they uh, feed the cells. And, you know, if, if, if we're feeding them something toxic or wasteful, then that's probably not good for the planet. If we're able to feed them some waste product and turn it into food for humans, then that's probably kind of a good thing environmentally. So it's all going to depend on how the technology advances. advances and like you said, what the building blocks are. And as far as the... Um, as far as the impact on your health, well, that's probably going to be kind of similar to the meat that it's based on, right? And so that's, again, a little controversial, but I think that uh, most of us would do better to eat less meat. Uh, and um, that, that doesn't mean it couldn't be of some benefit to some humans some of the time. Ethically speaking, I got no problem with it. You know, it's not there's no animal, no animals were harmed in the making of this food, right? Or this burger. So, uh, you know, people can decide for themselves how they feel about the idea of eating something that comes out of a laboratory. In general, I think we need to focus more on growing food that comes from the earth and uh, that is plants rather than food that was made in plants. So I think uh, while technology can be our friend, we have a bad habit as humans of thinking we can outwit nature. And that's why we've created over 1,400 flavorings and chemicals and preservatives and colorings that are in the food supply that have never been tested for their long-term health impact. And a lot of those turn out to be pretty darn toxic for us. But that doesn't mean that cultured meat couldn't be part of the solution. I, I hope it is. And along those same lines, um, what do you think about things like the Impossible Burger and and foods that are out there that sometimes do have some of these flavorings or are using genetically modified ingredients. Are we headed in the right direction? Are we not heading in the right direction? Uh, for those that aren't familiar, Impossible Burger is a plant-based burger, uh, but with you know soy and wheat and other items inside of that. I'm just curious about your opinion. Obviously, the intent is good. What they're trying to bring to the table is good, but is that a health food? <laughs> well, it's all. it all depends what it's replacing. I mean, I think personally that that compared to a McDonald's burger patty, Impossible Burger is a step in the right direction. I think you'll probably be better off, most people will, with that. But is it a health food? Heck no. I mean, you're better off eating beans, you know, than burgers almost any time. And I think that some people do well with so-called transitional foods, things that kind of help bridge the gap from what we're used to, to something maybe moving in a healthier direction. And, you know, plant-based burgers or plant-based milks can, can be helpful in that regard. Um, but at the end of the day, we want to have more foods that come from the earth and that are as minimally processed as possible. You know, it's fascinating how often this is true, that humans try to improve on Mother Nature and we wind up kind of failing miserably. It's like, it's like people ask me sometimes, you know, what I think about certain kinds of fat, for example, monounsaturated fat from avocados. And I say, you know what, avocados can be really, really good for you. Uh, but 
monounsaturated fat is more, avocados are more than just monounsaturated fat. It's a whole symphony of ingredients. Avocados also give you, you know, 10 grams of fiber. They give you a whole bunch of other phytonutrients that are healthful. And the monounsaturated fat comes with that. So anytime we extract things, process things, we tend to somehow, remarkably enough, to make them worse, even when we're trying to make them better. A lot of our vitamin supplements, they sound good in theory. They reduce in studies, they reduce uh, human deficiencies of those vitamins, but then they turn out to have other side effects that we never imagined. And it turns out that getting your vitamins from food seems to work a whole lot better. There are all kinds of cofactors there that just seem to work together. So, you know, Mother Nature or God or however you want to think of it was pretty darn smart in creating a lot of the foods that give us life and our bodies were designed to eat those foods. And so in general, I say, you know what? Yes, transitional foods may be helpful along the way, but uh, they're not optimal. I'm curious for you, before we get into some more food topics, you know, you grew up in this world. You grew up in this world of uh, awareness to uh, food and our food choices. When you look at your life growing up and you look at your life uh today, still being in the plant-based world, how is your diet as a, as a kid differently different as a young adult or kid different than today, or is it the same? <laughs> uh, well, as I, as I, once I started Food Revolution Network, I started paying more attention to what I was eating. And, you know, we, we write a lot of articles and there's a whole part two of my book is all about nourish. It's about how you can say yes to the, the superfoods, the really good, healthy foods, and our articles often focus on those topics. And, you know, once I hear about the studies showing that, you know, for example, people who eat greens in large amounts have 11 more years of healthy brain function on average. Uh, women who uh, eat button mushrooms regularly uh, have a 64% drop in breast cancer risk. When I hear that, you know, green tea is associated with, uh, when you combine it with mushrooms, with an 89% drop in, in breast cancer mortality rates, amongst one study of 2000 women over decades, you know, when I hear about this stuff, it has an effect on me. So, you know, I eat a lot more greens and mushrooms and whole foods even than I did growing up. I'll be honest, when I was a kid, I was more passionate about saving the animals and saving the planet than I was about my health. I think every youngster tends to think we're going to live forever. And so young people don't tend to focus as much on the health side of the equation. And then in my experience, as we get older, as our bodies start to have some aches and pains, and we feel our own mortality, then, uh, then many of us start to take health more seriously. And so I see a lot of folks in their, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, who are really concerned about their health and are taking food a lot more seriously from that vantage point. So when I was a kid, I was more concerned about environmental impact and, you know, saving animals. And I was a pretty hardcore vegan uh, for for some years, I mean, I, I actually got in a fist fight with my best friend one day at lunchtime over the contents of his lunchbox. You know, I, I called him a murderer uh, for eating a roast beef sandwich, and we got in a fight. And I wound up in the principal's office. And you know, as I was sitting there, I was thinking, "Wow, here I am talking about peace and love and nonviolence, and I'm getting a, in a freaking fist fight with my best friend." <laughs> you know, and so over the years, I think I softened and and deepened. And, you know, I, I include, um, and I talk about this in 31 day food revolution today, I include some wild fish, you know, salmon, sardines, herring in my diet, not in large quantities. I'm concerned about mercury levels. And I'm frankly concerned about the future of our oceans. And I don't like taking fish lives needlessly. But I've been impressed by the studies showing us that 
omega-3 fatty acids are good for us, particularly, you know, the EPA and DHA that are the long chain omega-3s that are only found in algae and fish products for the most part. And um, so, you know, based on that and based on my own sensibilities and my desire to not not to be an extremist, to be part of a, a big tent that's inclusive of everybody, I felt that it was important for me to include that in my diet, um, you know, in, in modest quantities. And it feels good to me. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't mean it's right for everybody, but it feels right to me. And I also eat some pasture-raised eggs from time to time from neighbor's chickens. And that works for me. Uh, I don't have a big ethical problem with it. I don't know if it's optimal for health or not, but I don't have an ethical problem with it. I don't have an environmental problem with it. And I like to experiment and try different kinds of foods. Absolutely. And I think the key is experimentation because if we've learned anything from the history of humanity, human beings will eat all sorts of different diets. They'll try stuff. They'll figure it out. And people have to go on their own journey with, of course, the core base principles. You know, uh, thank you for sharing about your diet. I will say for me, when I first started eating fish after having been vegetarian for such a long time, just like you having read the studies and making it a part of a really foundational diet that had worked for me for a long time, but adding in some things that I felt that were, were missing for me, it was psychologically a big deal. Like psychologically, like I had to really sort of wrap my head around it. Um, I know this isn't, ex- you know, this is similarly on the subject because there's a lot of people that are here on the shore that are listening that are vegetarian or vegan or, or whatever, whatever it might be. Was it a big deal? Was it psychologically a big deal for you? It kind of was. I mean, I, I don't talk about this too often, but to be honest, I actually had a dream in which I basically was told that I, that it would be better for my spiritual development to include fish in my diet. Now that might sound really weird, and particularly to people who are vegan, who feel that, that, uh, and I honestly felt that, that being vegan was more, I, I was willing to take a hit to my health on behalf of my ethics. Um, but what I felt from the dream was that fanaticism wasn't my friend in terms of my life's purpose, and that I was losing connection from human beings who did see uh, animal flesh as food not as uh, not as a sin. And there was some way in which I was caught in a dogmatism. You know, Martin Luther King said, you have no moral authority with those who can feel your underlying contempt. And there's a way in which I was holding some degree of contempt for people who ate animal products. And I kind of needed to move past that. And there was no better way than, than to include some consciously sourced wild fish in, in my diet to recognize uh, a different perspective on it. And, you know, my wife eats some pasture-raised animal products and she gets them from very conscious sources. And for a long time, I was really resistant to having those in the home because quite frankly, I, I didn't like the idea of having meat cooked in our home. But what, what she was doing then was she was eating them out at restaurants sometimes. And I realized that the, the, the animals that she was consuming in those situations were probably less consciously raised than what we could find, you know, from a farmer's market or something. So we made the choice, okay, we're going to be a mixed dietary orientation household. You know, we're plant-based, um, but we're going to have a little bit of meat in the home, um, which which my wife will consume. I, I don't choose to. Our children don't choose to. Um, but I, every time I'm around it, I just feel, you know, that it's really important for me to have my heart open to all different diet patterns and styles. And, you know, we have so much fundamentalism in this world, so many, so much dogmatism, so many people who divide ourselves along lines. And I think when we divide, we also get conquered in some way by the status quo. And I'm interested in how we can really stand together and build bonds and realize, you know, you don't have to be a vegan to care how animals are treated and want them to be treated decently. 
you know, you don't have to be a, a meat eater to care about the future of the planet and to want topsoil and water for future generations. We all have a stake in where we're going and we all want to be healthy. And I'm interested in whatever works, quite frankly, more than in uh, any kind of ideology. And my perspective is that a predominantly plant-based diet is what works best for most people most of the time. That doesn't mean it's right for everybody. You know, we are all unique. We all have our own ethical sensibilities, our own health histories, you know, own biochemical individuality, metabolism, life stage. And depending on that, uh, you may or may not have certain needs for certain nutrients or certain experiences. But at the end of the day, we can learn from the, the medical research that it's best to move in a plant-based direction and eat real whole foods. And then in 31 Day Food Revolution, I focus a lot on how to know what's right for you, how to listen to your own body and, and put uh, the learnings of medical science and your own wisdom to work so you can make choices that are really in your own best interests. Uh, I want to talk about something that you referenced earlier. You talked about featuring these superfoods. And obviously, this is a podcast about brain health. Uh, we know now that through the researchers that some of the early signs and pathways that eventually might lead to Alzheimer's can show up in your body 30 years before the symptoms fully um, manifest. And we know how important certain foods are for our overall brain health. I'd love to talk to you about that. And from your perspective, things that you do for your diet when it comes to brain health and what are other foods that people can incorporate uh, for themselves in their diet to support their brain health? Oh, it's so wonderful to to explore this with you. you know, some of my top brain boosting superfoods are blueberries. I mean, they just rock. And there have been studies showing that women who ate blueberries regularly had a you know extra two or three years of cognitive function just from that. Uh, so bring on the berries. And it's not just blueberries. It's also raspberries and strawberries and all of the berries, actually, uh, blackberries uh, that are associated with positive health benefits. But it seems that blueberries are are the biggest champs of all, especially wild blueberries, by the way, but uh, but all types. And then, um, you know, I love greens. I mentioned earlier the study from researchers at the at Rush University out of Chicago. They studied um you know, tens of thousands of people over about a decade and looked at what they ate and how they lived and uh, what happened to their brains and ended up concluding that that uh, consuming uh, large amounts of greens was associated with 11 more years of cognitive function. I mean, 11 years. Can you think about that for a second? Do you know anybody who's facing or fearing Alzheimer's or dementia right now? Have you ever lost anyone to it? I know we have in our family. Um, Absolutely. In my family and as well. Yeah. And what would somebody in that position give for 11 more years of having their brain back? I mean, it's, it's priceless, right? And so, heck, eat some greens, <laughs> you know, a lot of them. And uh, so those are two of my favorites. And then I talked about omega-3 fatty acids, which, you know, if you're, if you're vegan or plant-based, you can focus in on chia seeds and flax seeds in particular. You may want to take an algae-based supplement that gives you the DHA and EPA. Your body can make them from ALA which is in, you know, um, flax and chia seeds, but different people convert at different levels of efficiency. So if you don't convert efficiently, then you may really benefit from a supplement. Uh, and also you want to reduce your consumption, by the way, of omega-6 fatty acids because they're not your friend. And it seems that when you have more omega-6s, your body is less efficient at absorbing and converting the omega-3s. So uh, the closer you are to a balance between omega-6s and omega-3s, the more efficient you'll be. Speaking of converting, turmeric is incredibly potent as a brain booster. Now, this is a super spice 
that is correlated with reducing inflammation in the body. Um, but it's also linked to extraordinary results for brain health. And, and here's a fascinating thing, Drew, that I, I found this pretty remarkable. So, you know, about half the world's vegetarians live in India. And India has pretty much the lowest Alzheimer's rate on the planet, like tiny fraction of what we have in the United States. And uh, Indians do not get a large amount of omega-3 fatty acids because a lot of them are vegetarians. So they're certainly not getting a lot of fish. And flax and chia seeds don't play a huge part in the diet. Um, but what's interesting is that there's a lot of turmeric consumed in India. Like the average Indian gets about a half teaspoon a day, more or less, of turmeric. And so, uh, there, you know, what do we attribute to, uh, to, to, the, to being the source of the remarkably low rates of Alzheimer's and dementia in India? Well, the plant-based diet could be a big factor. Um, but so too could be the high amount of turmeric. And there could be a connection here because what we're finding is that turmeric enhances your body's ability to convert ALA to EPA and DHA. ALA being a short chain fatty acid, omega-3, and DHA and EPA being long chain ones that are essential to brain health. So it may well be that a lot of folks in India are taking advantage of turmeric. And one of the benefits is that they're converting more efficiently. So uh, you could say that turmeric is a vegetarian's best friend. <laughs> and of course, my Indian background, I didn't grow up in India, uh, but with an Indian family, we consumed turmeric from a young age. And then later on, found out that this food that we've been having is a superfood now, which is incredible. Interestingly enough about the Alzheimer's, uh, Alzheimer's, we're seeing a little bit of that change in India in the cities. And yes. it's early data, but the even though consumption of turmeric is still high, we're noticing that the uh, consumption of sugar, sugar, and India has one of the fastest growing rates of diabetes anywhere in the world. Uh, it seems that the increase of sugar might be finally canceling out some of those benefits that are there. But of course, yeah. you know, you can't just take a superfood and supplement some other parts of the body that aren't working well. But in the rural parts of India, where there hasn't been as much inclusion of of sugar, uh, we are still seeing those super low rates of Alzheimer's. Yes, absolutely. It's so true. And, you know, I, I've, I founded a nonprofit when I was 16, and I worked with young leaders in 65 countries around the world. The organization was called Yes, It's Still Going Today. And as I traveled the globe and, and spent 20 years empowering changemakers all over the planet, I kept seeing that everybody eats. And that, you know, the American way of producing food with agrochemicals and GMOs and pesticides and and the American way of processing food and marketing it was spreading with KFC and McDonald's and Baskin Robbins spreading around the world. And I saw that as this was happening, you know, waistlines were expanding, hospitals were filling up, and people were getting sick with diseases like Alzheimer's that had been virtually unheard of a generation ago. And that eventually brought me full circle after 20 years working around the world, I decided to focus on food directly and join with my dad and now colleague, you know, John Robbins in, in uh, standing up for healthy, ethical, sustainable food for everyone who eats, because I, I could see the enormous power of food to shape our destiny. And I just did not want um, to stand by silently while, while my country became a model to the world um, of a way of eating that was, you know, killing people. Mm. It's so important. And it goes back to this larger point of activism, which I want to circle back to uh, towards the end of our conversation. I have a few questions on that. I do have a few more questions on food that I'd love to talk to you about. You mentioned something earlier that a big part of what you teach 
uh, now and in your own diet has been figuring out what works uh, for you. So we know through the work of uh, Dan Butner and the Blue Zones that beans are uh, food that is consumed a lot by the different Blue Zones that are out there. And of course, uh, yeah. when most people are making them, they're processing them in ways that traditionally reduce like uh, some of the plant proteins inside there that are sometimes disruptive for people if they're not prepared properly. It could be lectins, could be other items out there through a pressure cooker. Uh, yep. In my journey into sort of the world of functional medicine, I got clear through my own personal experimentation, through doing elimination diet, through doing food sensitivity screenings, that I did not feel the best or do the best when I would eat foods like beans or grains outside of uh, white white rice. And that's just what I've found for myself. How do mm -hmm. you encourage people to do experimentation or to look deeper at how they can begin to personalize? Because of course we all have, now we're seeing from different uh, studies that are out there, some of us come with different uh, gut microbiomes. So we don't process foods the same as other people, even if those foods are uh, healthy overall. Uh, how do you encourage personalization of our diets to figure out what works best for us? Well, that's such an important point. And, you know, no two people are exactly the same. And just because something has been proven in countless medical studies to be good for most people most of the time does not mean that it's necessarily good for you. So, and, and also just because something was good for you once doesn't mean that it still will be, you know, next year or five years so from well now. Said. So we keep learning and growing. And quite frankly, a lot of it has to do with our microbiome. You know, what's going on in your digestive tract? There's a whole bacterial culture in there. And the bacteria that are there um, get accustomed to certain kind of dietary patterns. And then they reward you for continuing that because you've got the bacteria in your gut that like the foods you've been feeding them. So if you eat a diet high in sugar and processed food, then you've probably got a lot of bacteria in there that like sugar and processed food. And quite frankly, when you feel a hunger in your gut, it may be them as much as you. <laughs> and it's hard to know the difference sometimes. But we do know that when you move in a healthier direction, your body tends to respond and you can actually develop craving for healthy food. Yes, it really is possible to crave kale. I'm serious. Sometimes I eat it for breakfast and I'm salivating as I'm sitting down for it. A nice pot of steaming hot kale. And some people might think that sounds crazy, but it is possible. It really can happen. So um, a lot of people go on what's called an elimination diet. You know, there's different forms of it. You can Google them online. I've got a description of that in my book. But the bottom line is you, you cut out most things and you just have a few things that you feel really comfortable with that are probably safe. Try it for a while and see if any mysterious symptoms disappear. See if you feel better. And then one by one, you add foods back and see how your body responds to them. Um, I know a lot of people who, who actually do struggle with legumes, and yet the overwhelming body of medical research shows that they're tremendously healthy for us. So if you're somebody who struggles with them, then you might try a little bit of lentils, which is sometimes the, the legume that's the easiest, or split peas. Make sure they're cooked well. Definitely pressure cook them um, and uh, soak them. Uh, a lot of people find it's best if they soak them for 48 hours, changing the water every 12 hours. Uh, and that gets a, rid of the oligosaccharides that are a lot of what can cause the flatulence that, that give beans the unfortunate nickname of being the musical fruit. Right. So um, if you go to these blue zones or if you go to India and you see how these beans and, and legumes are traditionally prepared, it's it's a lot of work, right? The pressure cooker, yeah. the soaking. I always grew up growing and eating beans in this in this way. And there was a reason why people put all this work into preparing the food to be consumed. 
Yeah, exactly. So I mean, a typical elimination diet means you're steering clear of nuts, corn, soy, dairy, citrus fruits, nightshade, vegetables, wheat, and anything else containing gluten, typically also pork, eggs, and seafood. And you might do it for like two weeks to start off with. And then you can actually have a food journal and carefully add food groups back one at a time or foods back one at a time uh, and see if um, symptoms come back. And then you can start to identify a culprit in that way. You know, it takes some time uh, to get to know your body in that way, but it, it can be very helpful. Uh, you can also just have a food journal where you just track what you eat and you might be surprised to discover that it's a little, little different than you thought. You know, for most people, the low-hanging food is giving up sugar and processed junk and and maybe even try giving up, you know, a certainly factory farmed animal products or cutting way down on the meat or eliminating it. Try that for a little while, see how you feel. And uh, a lot of people find that pounds melt away and energy comes back with that kind of direction. Uh, but some people have already been doing that for a while and they're still not getting the results they want. And then you want to kind of go further. Um, so yeah, with legumes, soaking is helpful, small quantities, try, you know, um, try the, the lentils. They're very high in fiber. And uh, actually, some people find that, that if they haven't been eating legumes for a while, the fiber in them will, among other things, cause a tremendous explosion in gut bacteria. Because guess what? The bacteria in your gut like to eat fiber. So similarly, taking probiotics sometimes leads to digestive discomfort. And it may be in some cases that you just need to try it out for a while and get used to it. But for other people, that's not the case. They've been doing it for a long time and their body just wasn't digging it. So, you know, you have to give it a shot and see what works. Um, scientifically, there's a lot in legumes that is wonderful, but they're not for everybody. Have you ever tried an elimination diet and then found something that was very healthy for you didn't agree with you in your own personalization? I have not, but I know plenty of people who have. Yeah. Just curious. Yeah, sure. And and it's interesting. Sometimes, you know, some people say, oh, you crave the things that are bad for you because you're addicted to them. Well, that might be the case, but uh, I don't think it's always the case. Uh, sometimes, yeah. uh, sometimes something can be good and bad at the same time, <laughs> you know, like it's got nutrients you love, but it's also got something that's just not working for you. So you learn and uh, you want to shore up your microbiome. So eating good probiotics and prebiotics is really critical. And that, that means vegetables. Um, but particularly certain kinds of vegetables that are high in fiber. You know, less than 5% of the U.S. population gets enough fiber, get, gets the recommended dietary allowance. The RDA is about 30 grams a day. The average American gets about 15. Our Paleolithic ancestors got about 100 in, in many locations. So we're eating way less fiber than would be good for us. And fiber is the number one food for the good guys in your gut. So getting enough fiber is really important. And you know what? There's no fiber in any animal products. Uh, there's no fiber in bottled oils. There's uh, very little fiber in white flour or white sugar, but there's a whole lot of fiber in vegetables and uh, particularly few of the most prebiotic rich fibers, um, prebiotic fiber rich foods would be Jerusalem artichokes are amazing. Um, and, um, you know, jicama is also incredible. Apples are really good. Onions, particularly if they're raw and also garlic, these are a few of my favorites. And um, so those are wonderful. Of course, I keep talking about the good guys. I know you asked me if there were any things I'd found to be bad for me. But, you know, what I love about food, Drew, is, is healthy food that can really light us up and, and fuel the life we want. Yeah, absolutely. You know, your community is called Food Revolution. And a big part of your background is in activism and making a difference. When we start to make these changes in our own 
diet and we start to feel better and we start to see that our acne goes away or that our cognition improves or other things, we start to ask bigger questions of how I can take this to more people. How can I change my children's school? How can I do this? How can I bring this to people who might be less aware or less fortunate than we are because all the food choices we make impact the planet. And as you mentioned earlier, we vote with our dollars. Uh, Talk about activism and making a difference because we are truly at this place now where for the first time in the history of this planet, we are genuinely at jeopardy based on, on how the future unfolds from here. What does it mean for you? And what would you like to leave with our listeners when it comes to really embodying and stepping into their own personal food revolution? Mm. Every dollar you spend, every bite you take is a vote. You're voting for the health you want, and you're also voting for the world you want. And part part one of 31 Day Food Revolution focuses on detoxifying, getting rid of the bad stuff. Part two focuses on nourishing, saying yes to the good stuff. Part three focuses on gathering. It's about the social side of food and how you can build a healthy, thriving, vibrant food community and culture. And then part four is about transforming. It's about how we can be participants in building a better world every day. And instead of, you know, we all have a choice. We can either be complicitous in the status quo, or we can be everyday revolutionaries. And I'm here to say being an everyday revolutionary is a whole lot more fun. You know, when you bring your food choices into integrity with your values and what you want for your life and for your planet, your life takes on a potency, a meaning, a substance, a strength, a value that's tremendous. You know, I used to take martial arts in my teen years. And what I learned was that there's this concept of being centered. And when you're centered, you can absorb a big push without falling over. And when you're not centered, a little tap can knock you over. And so I say that when you bring your food choices into integrity with who you really are and what you really want, your life takes on a dynamism and a potency and a strength. You're less likely to be buffeted about by external forces and more likely to stand your ground and be who you truly were meant to be. And to me, food is nothing less than an opportunity to truly step into our life's purpose and and live a bigger in a bigger way and make a bigger impact and contribution on this planet. The spoiler alert is it's a whole lot easier to change the world than you probably ever imagined. With our food choices, we can help preserve topsoil and water for future generations. We can help create a more stable climate. We can help contribute to kids being uh, given access to healthy food in school and to reducing the obesity epidemic for children and reducing the Alzheimer's epidemic for elders. We can contribute to sane food policy that actually stops subsidizing junk food and starts investing in the well-being of communities so that the poorest are not condemned to nutritional disasters. It all starts with you and me, and we can make an incredible difference. There are so many problems in this world that feel overwhelming or even unconfrontable. But when it comes to your food choices, you have the opportunity deliciously to be a part of the solution. You know, Gandhi said we must be the change we wish to see in the world. Well, nowhere can we more effectively be the change, I think, than with our own knives and forks every single day. So I wrote 31 Day Food Revolution to put the power in your hands where it belongs to reclaim your health, to reclaim your life, and to take a stand for the world that our children deserve. And you can do that deliciously. Beautiful. I love it. Ocean 2020 is coming around the corner. I don't know if you're going to announce your 
presidential run then, but that's a great style <laughs> speech. That's a great style speech. <laughs> Thank uh, you. You know, you mentioned uh, this power to transform in all of our choices and we can't do it alone too. Community is so important. Do you want, do you want yes. to, just, I, I'm just curious because, because in our Broken Brain docuseries, we talk about um, the challenge with isolation, the challenge with doing this all on your own, especially when you start to make changes in your, in your diet and other stuff, you can tend to maybe switch. You can tend to, sometimes it can be a little isolating because you're doing things and habits that are different than other people, but ultimately yes. nothing is more powerful than community and centering ourselves with people who uh, have a similar vision and path and want to give back in a way. How does community show up for you in your own life? Separate from your immediate family, um, would love to love to know, like, how do you incorporate community for you uh, to keep you strong and, and keep you supported through your journey? You know, there's the, there's studies showing us that loneliness kills faster than cigarettes. And, you know, in the modern world, so many people feel fundamentally lonely in their hearts. And I am committed to everyone feeling a sense of belonging, a sense of community, a sense of place, because every single one of us is precious and unique. And I believe sacred. I believe created for a purpose. And I want to help as many people as possible to live that purpose. And often we find that purpose not alone, but but in connection with one another. And so, um, so in my own personal life, you know, I have a rich network of friends and loved ones. I I will admit I work a lot of hours, <laughs> so I'm in front of the computer a lot. Uh, but even then, I'm connecting with people all over the world and supporting them and being supported by them and and um, building alliances for common purpose. Um, and I also, you know, I live on a, a multi-home property with a number of different families and we share potlucks and meals together. And I just think it's beautiful um, to have people in our lives that, that track us and that look out for us and we're looking out for them. You know, the nuclear family model that you just have, you know, your little pod and it's us against the world, I think is kind of breaking down because we need each other more than that in, in this world. And we're up against some some pretty big forces that that pull us in some pretty toxic directions. And so I think it it can take strength and solidarity and community to help build us up. Um, but the beautiful thing, and I, I in 31 Day Food Revolution, I focus a lot on how to leverage uh, social relationships, not only to bridge against loneliness, not only to make new friends, uh, but to empower your food culture. Because when we break bread together, metaphorically at least, when, when we share meals together, we build bonds of connection. So why not make them healthy bonds that affirm your well-being? So you can you know, create a meal-sharing co-op with loved ones. I'll make lunch on Tuesdays. You make it on Wednesdays, you know, healthy food. You can bring your neighbors, you know, some extra lentil soup and, you know, maybe they'll bring you something nice another time. You know, a lot of times we, we share junk foods, you know, cakes and ice creams and, and donuts. Um, but we can also share healthy foods and create healthier lives and a healthier fabric of community. I also think farmers markets and Community-supported agriculture programs can be a way to build bonds of connection as well, because food is not just a commodity. It's also a community and a web of relationships. And when we leverage it, we, we I think, weave ourselves back into the web of life. We, we find ourselves more at home somehow, more rooted somehow in the world. And so um, that's one of my real passions, is that food can be an opportunity to feel a sense of belonging and a sense of community and a sense of connection. That's, that's part of what I want for you. Mm, beautifully said. 
31-day food revolution, heal your body, feel great, and transform your world. Comes out on February 5th. And for every copy sold, you are planting fruit trees. Tell us about that. Yes, I am. You know, I am so sick and tired of healthy food being some kind of elitist luxury. You know, it feels like it takes your whole paycheck to eat whole foods. I want to change that. And I want to change government policy. And I want to change consumer choice to help tilt the playing field in a healthier direction so that it ceases to be profitable for junk food manufacturers to poison our kids. And so that it ceases to be uh, acceptable for government to subsidize the least healthy foods. One of the ways that I take a stand in this is by, for, for every new copy of 31 Day Food Revolution that's sold, I'm donating to Trees for the Future so that they can plant an organic fruit or nut tree in a low-income community. They're primarily working in sub-Saharan Africa, although they plant all over the world. And this way, villages and communities are going to have healthy food to eat for generations to come. And so that's a beautiful way that you get to be part of the solution every day, not just with your knife and fork, but also with your reading. So that while you're learning and growing and applying this life-giving wisdom in your life, you also know you're helping somebody else. No, oh, so beautiful. And it's 31dayfoodrevolution.com. You can find it in the show notes. Ocean, where else can people find you on the interwebs? Well, you can you can find me again at 31 day that's 31dayfoodrevolution.com. You can grab a copy of the book at your local bookstore. You can also get it online. Um and you will find me uh certainly at foodrevolution.org which is our website and you'll find me in your own heart. Every time you choose real food over processed junk, every time you eat lower on the food chain, every time you say no to industrialized meat, Every time you decide to make food a sacred, beautiful experience of living in alignment with your values, you're part of the food revolution. So welcome. Uh, yes. Thank you. And let's do this together. I have one last question that I want to end with. Your best friend that you punched in school, <laughs> you got into a <laughs> Are you guys still friends? Do you keep in touch? <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that, but we actually are. He found me online. Oh my god! Amazing the way Facebook works. He found me online, and yes, we are we are in touch. And oh. uh, he's doing some good stuff. You know, I was born in Canada, and I lived up there, so he's Canadian. Oh, you no, know, we don't live in the same country, but we're 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 allies. And he might be listening right now. <laughs> he might be listening. He might be listening. Ocean, yeah, thank yeah. you so, so much, Jer for Jer Jeremy. If you are listening, uh, thanks thanks for putting up with me. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Ocean. Thank you for joining us on the Broken Brain Podcast. We so appreciate you and for sharing your wisdom here and giving us all your great tips from your new book. Thank you again. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes especially when it comes to your health.